Matthew 28, 16 through 20. When you're there, say amen. amen. Let's do it. It says, Now the eleven disciples went to Galilee and to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshipped him. But some doubted. That's just the air conditioner coming on. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. I want to preach to you this morning on the topic of evangelism. Would you pray with me as we begin? Father, we thank you for your word. Your word is life. God, speak to us today. Renew us. Give us life. God, help us to see beyond ourselves this morning. To see the lost. To see the mission that you've given us. That we might take the gospel to the city and to the ends of the earth. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. Oh, this London of ours. It is a horrible place for Christian people to live in. Round about this neighborhood, scarcely can a decent person remain by reason of the vice that abounds and the language that is heard on every side. Many of you are as much vexed today as Lot was when he was in Sodom. I confess, I can never go through this huge city without feeling unhappy. I never pass from end to end of London without feeling a black and dark cloud hanging like a pail over my spirit. How my heart breaks for thee, O city, full of sin that is London. Is it not so with you, my brethren? Think of the slums, its sins, its poverty, its ugliness, its drunkenness, its vice. These may go well through a man's heart like sharp words, how Jesus would have wept in London. And now could we only get the church of God to awake? We should soon have the whole city moved. Let our ministers preach the gospel or let them preach and let them preach it with something like force. Let the members of the church back them up by vehement zeal, earnest prayer, and incessant labors. We should want nothing else to stir this city from end to end. Let the church awake, and that influence shall be had whereby the city shall be moved. That was Charles Spurgeon speaking to the Metropolitan Tabernacle in the 19th century of his own city. And it reminds us that we live in the realities of this world, the realities of the city. But the realities of our city drives us not away, but toward. Drives us to mission. Perhaps perhaps you dislike our city, like Charles Spurgeon disliked his city. Perhaps you love our city. 
But we all have something in common, I think, with Spurgeon as well as with the first century Christians. And that is this. The more you love Jesus, the more you feel, at, uh, the more you feel strange in this world. It doesn't matter what city you're in. And I want you to see this morning how our love is seen not in our feelings of liking the city, but our love is seen in the service to our city with the gospel message. That's what we see in this quote that I just gave you from, from Spurgeon. He talks about how London is a horrible place, but then he says, if only we could get the church of God to awake. You see, he doesn't like his city, but he loves his city. And we know he loves his city because he wants to take the gospel of Jesus Christ to his city, and that is love. That is the greatest expression of love. Our mission drives our love. Within your family, with your neighbors, within the city in which we reside. So whether or not you love Baltimore, the more you love Jesus, the more you feel strange in our city, but the more you love Jesus, the more you want to take the hope of Jesus to the lost, and therefore you love the city in which you reside. Our natural human tendency, however, because of the hardships of this world, is to turn inward. And, and, and Christians are not immune from this. We don't get saved and all of a sudden we're immune from all of our natural human tendencies. Let me tell you what I, I think typically is the, the natural Christian tendency. And that is to remedy our loneliness by surrounding us ourselves with culturally familiar Christians. By turning inward. By having just a couple friends that are actually just like me in my church and I don't have to engage with anybody else. I don't have to talk to anybody else. I don't have to talk to anybody that's different from me and I don't have to go into the city because I'm doing my little Christian bubble kind of thing. And then as a result, we become like an ingrown hair which develops an infection. Every inward facing church dies. There are infections that develop because we were not designed by God. We were not wired. We were not saved to just turn inward. But rather, we have this great commission, which I read to you from Matthew chapter 28. And I want to ask you this. Do you actually believe that this great commission is for you? When Jesus says, go therefore, into all the world, make disciples of all nations, preach the gospel. Do you believe this is for you? Like that's really where we're at today. And I want you to walk out of here saying, you know what, I actually do believe that this mission has been given to me and I want to be a person on mission for Jesus. We're in a series called Peculiar People, which has been a topical series for us, which is a little different than what we normally do. We're about to get into a, the book of, uh, of Ecclesiastes. We usually just preach through books of the Bible. But what we're doing is a topical series on what, what is it that makes a healthy church. And so the first topic we looked at was 
expositional preaching, which is what we typically do, just preaching through the Word of God. The second week, we looked at the gospel, a right understanding of the gospel. The third week, we looked at the doctrine of conversion, how Christians are made. The fourth week, we looked at belonging, church membership, and church discipline, and how that works together to create a healthy church. And then the last time uh, th that we were in this series, we looked at the topic of growth, that that healthy churches are place, places where Christians are growing. And today what we're looking at is this topic of evangelism, meaning a healthy church, or let me, let me back up, since we are a people sent on mission, a healthy church is a church with a right understanding and practice of evangelism. A healthy church has a right understanding and a right practice of evangelism. Are you with me? I do not mind if you share your amens and hallelujahs with me this morning. Thank you. Let's, let's, let's get in tune with, what, with, with the Word of God and with one another as we preach. Amen? As I preach. I need your help. All right. Evangelism. I want to I ask four questions, and I want to structure my message around these four questions. Number one, what is evangelism? Number two, why does evangelism matter? Number three, what's the danger of missing it? And number four, how do I evangelize? Are you ready? Number one, what is evangelism? Evangelism has been defined in this way. It's delivering the whole gospel. It's calling people to repent and believe in Jesus Christ. And it is encouraging people to know, to understand, that, that following Jesus is costly, but worth it. Evangelism first is preaching the whole gospel. This goes back to part two of our Peculiar uh, People series. We, we, we gave you a four-part outline to remember the gospel. God, man, Christ, response. The gospel begins with this message of who God is. God is a holy God. God is the creator God. God is the judge. Well, who is man? Who is humanity? Humanity, humans, we are people created by God in His image, and we're created to worship Him and glorify Him. Amen? And we've done that so well as a human race, haven't we? No, we are rebels against God. That's our human problem. Our biggest problem that we have is sin. And so that takes us then to Christ. Because of our rebellion, God, God will not allow rebels to continue forever. And whether we're 80 or 90 or 100 years old, however many generations this world will continue, God will at some point finally judge the rebel. And it brings us to Christ. Christ, who is Christ? Christ is the Son of God, God in the flesh, God incarnate, who came to live the life that you and I should have lived. He died the death that you and I should have died. In His death, He took the judgment that you and I deserved on His own being, and He paid it all. And three days later, Jesus got up from the dead, defeating death, defeating sin, with the promise that all who turn from their sins and trust in Him, are right now forgiven of all their sins as far as the east is from the west separated from the, 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 
guilt, guiltiness, the shame, and the punishment for their sin. And one day, they will be raised to new life, given a new body, and live forever with God apart from even the presence of sin, death, crying, pain, the old order passed away. That's the gospel message. We are to share the gospel message. And just in case you're wondering if this is for you, if you're new, new here or you're exploring Christianity, this is for you. And I invite you this morning to turn from your sins and trust in Jesus and have the hope that you are forgiven. Turn to Acts chapter 3 in your Bibles. Acts chapter 3. We're going to hop around to a couple different passages today. So try to be quick on the draw. Acts chapter 3. And if you can't find it, um, you can look in the front cover of your Bible and find a page number. Acts chapter 3 verse uh, verse 12. It says this, And when Peter saw what had happened. Now Peter here, he's preaching the gospel to his fellow Jews. And they're performing, performing miracles. And they're wondering about the power. Where is this power coming from? And Peter says this, he says, Men of Israel... Why do you wonder at this? Why do you stare at us as though by our own power or piety we have made him walk? The God of Abraham, I, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob, the God of our fathers. You see how Peter begins his gospel proclamation? Who does he begin it with? God. I can't tell you about salvation before I first tell you about God. And he says, look, this power that you've seen, the power and the miracles, is not because of me, Peter says. It's because of God. God is the God, he's saying, of all power. And he, he talks about God, by the way, in a way that they understand. He's talking to Jews, and he says the God of our fathers, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. They understand what he's, who he's talking about here. So as he begins to share the gospel, he begins with God. And then he goes on, verse 17, he goes on and talks about us, man, humanity. He says, and now, brothers, I know that you acted in ignorance, as did also your rulers. You are ignorant. That's what he says. And he says that, like, not like modern day slang, the way we talk about ignorant. He's saying you truly are ignorant in the truest sense of the word. You don't know this God. Amen. And you've crucified his Messiah. You've rejected his Messiah. You are people who are rebels. You're rejecters of God. You see what he's doing? He starts with God, God of all power, and you're ignorant of this God of power. Where does he take us next? Look at verse 18. Christ. By what God foretold by the mouth of all the prophets that his... Uh, that his Christ would suffer, and thus he fulfilled. Skip down to verse 28. God, having raised up his servant from the dead, sent him to fir first to you to bless you by turning every one of you from your wickedness. He takes us to Christ and his sufferings and his resurrection and his blessing that he, through his work, can turn you from your wickedness. 
And then finally, he takes us to our response. Verse 19, he says, repent therefore. Verse 22, he says, listen to him. Which is another way of saying believe. Believe what he's saying. Hear him. Look, I just use this as an example to say that as we see the Gospel preached throughout the New Testament by the apostles, we often see those four points. God, man, Christ, response. We see the whole of the Gospel proclaimed as the Gospel is proclaimed. So, speak the Gospel. You know, Paul, later on, he doesn't say... Um, that having someone over to your house for dinner is the power of God unto salvation. He doesn't say inviting somebody to church is the power of God unto salvation. He doesn't say that personal empowerment is the power of God unto salvation. But what does he say? In Romans chapter 1, verse 26, he says the gospel is the power of God unto salvation. Meaning, when we communicate the gospel, the Holy Spirit infuses our words with power, and that is the power unto salvation. So how is it that people get saved? Like, we could do a lot of good in this world. You could do a lot of great things. You could become very successful and help many other people become very successful. Successful. But so what if you end up in hell? What is the good of all the good that we do in the world if they all end up in hell? The gospel is the, is the power of God unto salvation for all who believe. And that is what the, the Christian has been equipped with in our mission. Don't get it twisted. There is no other name under heaven under which we must be saved. And so let's be like Spurgeon again. Let me quote him again. Who said this? Spurgeon said, If sinners be damned, at least let them leap to hell over our dead bodies. And if they perish, let them perish with our arms wrapped around their knees, imploring them to stay. If hell must be filled, let it be filled with the teeth of our, in, in the teeth of our exertions, and that let no one go unwarned and unprayed for. So speak the gospel, but let me clarify. Speak the whole gospel. Speak the whole gospel, including the not-so-nice parts of the gospel. I was recently personally convicted of this. As there's a young dude in our community that I've known for many years, and, and I've recently been inviting him to church, and we were sitting on my stoop, and I again, I was like, hey, man, why don't you come to Bible study with me and, uh, or maybe come to church on Sunday? And he, and he was like, nah, church just, just is not my thing. And it, it, I was convicted because I thought, wait a second. I'm, I've never explained to him the urgency of Christ. Like for all he thinks, I'm just a religious guy who goes to church. And if it's your thing, you go to church. You see what I'm saying? And I was convicted that I haven't shared the whole of the gospel with him. So in that moment, I sought to, explaining the whole of it, the judgment and the necessity for repentance and belief. Speak the whole gospel. 
That is evangelism. If you have not spoken the whole gospel, you have not yet evangelized. A lot of people think they're witnessing. A lot of people think they're speaking the gospel because they've said some bits and pieces of Christian truth. You see what I'm saying? But if you don't speak the whole of it, then you actually haven't yet evangelized including taking them through their response. What is the response? Help me out. Repent and believe. Turn from your sins and trust in Jesus Christ. And so in doing so, call people to repent and believe. Meaning, it's not, uh, if we're not clear on how they receive salvation, we just simply leave them confused. Thinking that the gospel is for somebody, but maybe not for them. Finally, tell them that Jesus is costly. But following Christ is worth it. You know, even Jesus let a rich man walk away. Jesus was not about easy believism. He didn't just say, hey, keep all of your idols and just believe a couple things about me and you can be my disciple. Jesus says, no, you've got to turn from your idolatry of wealth. And the, and the man walks away, sad, and he let him go. Yes, the gospel is free. Salvation is completely free. And it costs you your entire life. Meaning God doesn't change us to allow us to remain the same. When we are saved, we are now owned by God. And to do our own thing now is to rob from what God owns. Are you with me? And so it's costly. But listen, don't just tell them it's costly. You know, often I'll ask people, I'll say, what do you need to turn from in order to follow Jesus? What do they need to turn from? It's costly. But don't just tell them it's costly. Remind them that Jesus is worth it. Jesus is worth it. Listen to this quote from John Calvin. He said that the godly heart wants to obey God even if there were no hell. Think about that. Now there is a hell. But he's saying even if there wasn't a hell, the godly heart wants to obey God still. We don't just simply want to follow Jesus so that we don't go to hell. Hell, we want to follow Jesus because He is the pearl of great price. Because He is life. Because in Him is life. Because He offers life. Because He shows us life. Because in Him is true joy. Are you with me? And so what we show is that, yes, it is costly. You have to walk away from things. But you're not walking away from anything that is better than Jesus. He's worth it, church. He's worth it, and some of you need to be reminded this morning that Christ is worth it. I don't know what God is calling you to walk away from. I don't know what sin, temptation He's calling you to, to steer clear from. I don't know what you need to abandon or sacrifice in your life, but Jesus is better than all of that combined. Jesus is worth it. So secondly then, that's what evangelism is. Secondly, why does evangelism matter for the local church? Meaning, why are 
we saying that this is one of the values of a healthy church? Well, a couple practical things. One, churches that evangelize grow. You know, there are, there are some churches that spend hundreds of thousands of dollars on marketing campaigns and social media strategies. Do you know that sharing the gospel with somebody is free? Like, it doesn't cost anything. Like, the, the, the very thing that really causes our church to grow, that could cause our church to grow, actually doesn't cost us any dollars. We don't have to have a budget line. Right, Raymond? I mean, we have a budget line in our church budget for evangelism, and that's all the trellis sort of stuff. That's all the stuff, like event stuff that we do. That's, that's like, you know, maybe hot dogs for the, for the block party that we're going to do. But grilling hot dogs is not evangelism. Like that's, we should call that like support work for evangelism. Evangelism doesn't cost anything. It doesn't cost you a dollar to go tell your neighbor about Jesus. It doesn't cost you a dollar to invite your lost coworker to come to church with you and hear about Jesus. So churches that evangelize grow. Churches that don't evangelize will die. They will die. They are not on mission. They will grow inward. They will develop an affection, and at some point, they will die. Secondly, I want to say this, it's not just about growth. It's not just about numbers. This is how people change. People's lives change when they come to Jesus. Bob, who was just here helping us, he's from Detroit, and he, he's been working all week here. Uh, Bob shared with me how he got saved. He said that in the year 2000, him and his wife got a divorce, and he realized, like, I need some change, and so he was invited to go to a church. He went to Cornerstone Church, where he's still at, and, uh, and he heard the gospel there, and he became a Christian, and then he began to pursue his wife, and he got her connected with a uh, counselor, the women's director at the church, who began to meet with her one-on-one to do some counseling. And through those meetings, she got saved. And then a year later, they got remarried. Like the gospel, the gospel changes people. That's just one story of conversion. I would love each of you to just come up here and let's just spend the rest of the time on an open mic just telling how did, the, how did your conversion change you? Like, the gospel changes lives. But at the end of the day, at the same time, it's not about people. We don't ultimately do this out of some kind of man-centered direction. But rather, evangelism is about the glory of God. Meaning, evangelism is us being obedient to Jesus... And glorifying God. And even when people are saved, the goal is that they become not worshipers of me. It's not about the messenger. It's not about like, I, I heard the story of the, the, the delivery boy who kept delivering mail, love letters from the boyfriend that lives across the country. And eventually, the woman fell in love with the delivery man. <laughs> like, we don't fall, it's not about the messenger. We're, we're delivering the news that draws hearts to God. Are you with me? 
evangelism is about the glory of God. Turn back to Matthew chapter 5, if you would. Matthew chapter 5, verse 14. Let me show this to you in the Scriptures. Why do we evangelize? Matthew 5, 14. He says, You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill that cannot be hidden. Nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others, so that they may see your good works and glorify, give, I'm sorry, give glory to your Father who is in heaven. This passage tells you your identity. You are light. This passage tells you your purpose. You are to illuminate. And this passage gives us your motivation that God might get the glory. We evangelize not out of man-centered reasons, but out of our desire that God might get the glory. And so what do we do? We let our light shine in the darkness. We let it shine. How would that song go, Tony? This little light of mine. I'm going to let it shine. There we go. This little light of mine. I'm going to let it shine. This little light of mine. I'm going to let it shine. Let it shine. Let it shine. Let it shine. Let it shine where? Let it shine all over Baltimore. I'm going to let it shine. Come on, help me out. Let it shine all over Pennsylvania Avenue. I'm going to let it shine. Let it shine in Sandtown and in southwest Baltimore and east Baltimore and, of course, the Upton Druid Heights neighborhoods of Baltimore and north Baltimore and in the county and all throughout the world. I'm going to let it shine. Let it shine. Let it shine. Maybe we'll have to close with that. First Peter chapter 3. Let's keep moving through the Scriptures here. First Peter chapter 3. Verse 15, he says, But in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you. I want, you, I want to point something out here. Christians play both offense and defense. The good basketball teams play good offense, and they play good defense. Christians play offense and defense. In letting our light shine, we are on offense. And then 1 Peter 3 tells us, make sure we play good defense. When somebody asks, what is the hope within you? And this is probably not curiosity. This is probably not innocent interest, but rather this is probably somewhat of a, uh, an accusation according to the context of 1 Peter. Because what he says is, be ready to make a defense. Meaning when people come at you for your faith, what about this? Why do Christians do this? Why do Christians believe the Bible when it was only written blah, 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 and coming, coming at you with all these different various accusations that they, that they heard on YouTube University, right? By some PhD who bought his PhD from a, from a PhD mill. With zero historical credibility and he's going to tell you that christians don't tell you this about history and it takes just like one history class 
to debunk his theory, all right? And what he's saying is, is when people come at you, he's saying be ready to give a defense, meaning know what the accusations are. This, this is where we get into the world of apologetics, which is part of evangelism. Be ready to give answers when asked. Now, what's the danger? This is my third question. What's the danger of misunderstanding evangelism? What's the danger of missing this? And it's possible to miss it, by the way. Like, it is possible for Christians, and even whole churches as a result, to not evangelize at all. It's possible to evangelize but be very manipulative and weird about it. Our right understanding of evangelism leads us to right practice. And to have a right understanding of evangelism, we have to understand that both God's sovereignty over salvation and man's responsibility are not at odds in evangelism. They're not in tension in evangelism, but God's sovereignty and man's responsibility are married in the gospel and in evangelism. Here's what I mean by this. Some people lean into God's sovereignty and say, well, if God is going to save whoever God is going to save, then why should I even evangelize? God's going to do what I'm going to do. So I'm just going to be my little inward church. They're missing that the Bible calls us to human responsibility. That people are responsible for their sin and we are responsible to take the gospel to them. How shall they be saved without a preacher, the scripture says. Now others will lean into man's responsibility and believe that God is not sovereign over salvation and it leads them to manipulative kind of weird practices where they're just trying to get people to make a decision without counting the cost, without understanding what they're getting into. Right understanding leads to right practice. Well, biblically, we see both. In Romans we see uh, this, this conversation about God hardening Pharaoh's heart, which goes back to Exodus chapter 4, Exodus 10, Exodus chapter 11. And what we see in the Exodus narrative is that it was the willful decision of Pharaoh to harden his own heart. Like Pharaoh hardened his heart. And he was responsible for that. And that was in tandem with what we also discover in Exodus and what's elaborated in Romans chapter 9 is that God hardened Pharaoh's heart. You see, these two things are not at odds. In God's mysterious sovereignty, man's responsibility and his power come together. Acts chapter 4 as another example, verse 38. We see that God predestined every aspect of the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. Yet in Acts chapter 2, verse 23, the people are held accountable for their crucifixion of Jesus Christ. God's sovereignty and man's responsibility. If we want to put the blame on God and say, well, God is sovereign, and if he wanted to change me, then he would change me. If God wanted me to stop sinning, then God would make me stop sinning. Well, James says, let no one say I'm tempted by God. When he is Lord and enticed, he says, it's by his own desires. We are responsible. We're responsible for our sin, and we're responsible to take the gospel uh, to the lost. How shall they hear without a preacher? 
Right understanding, then, leads us to right practice. What's the danger of missing evangelism? What's the danger of missing all of this? Let me give you a biblical list. I'm not going to give you all the verses here because I don't have time, but let me just read through my list. We develop a faith turned inward. We become an ingrown church. We hide our hope. We put a bushel over our light. We miss the blessing and rewards of evangelism. We stunt our spiritual growth. We disobey the Great Commission. We lose opportunities for joy. We minimize the worship of God. We lose confidence in the message. We miss the suffering of rejection which refines our faith. We don't weep over those for whom Christ wept. We fail to warn of coming judgment. We don't make disciples. God is not glorified in our love for the lost. We don't fish for men as Jesus commanded. We act like Jesus is optional. We act like we don't believe Him. We act like the good news isn't good. We act like we don't believe God is able to save anybody. We act like the good news doesn't make a man happy. Amen, Eric? We act like those who disown Christ, who will disown, who, will, who Christ will disown at the final judgment. We act like hell doesn't exist. We act like the Holy Spirit is not with us when we don't evangelize. But when we evangelize, can I turn it all around? We develop a faith which looks forward to heaven. We become the kind of church that goes after the outcast. We display our hope. We shed light in dark places. We reap the blessings and the rewards of evangelism. We grow spiritually. We obey the Great Commission. We have more joy than they have when their grain and wine abounds. We maximize the worship of God. We display confidence in the gospel message. We suffer with Jesus in his rejection. We weep over those for whom Christ wept. We warn of coming judgment. And we make disciples. We love the lost and God is glorified. We become fishers of men. We show that there is no other way to be saved other than trusting in Christ. We display our belief in Jesus. We show that the good news is actually good. We show that the good news makes a man happy. We show that we're owned by Jesus. We act like hell is a real threat, and we demonstrate that the power of the Holy Spirit is with us. Yes, a right understanding of evangelism leads us to right practice. How? First, it makes you bold. It makes you bold. Baltimore is hard. People are hard. Ministry is hard. And if it were not for the fact that God has elect in this city, God has people in this city whom He plans to save, then we would all just give up. But no, God has plans to save people. And so it it emboldens our evangelism. A right understanding leads to right practice. Secondly, it gives us patience. When fruit is lacking, when we're not seeing the results we want, when you're sharing the gospel with somebody over and over and they still haven't come to Jesus, you, still, you just chill out and trust in Jesus. You, still, you haven't lost any joy. 
You can trust God even when fruit is lacking and you just remain faithful. Third, we become prayerful. Since we're relying on the work of God in our evangelism, we have to be on our knees in prayer. Come back this evening at 6 p.m. That's partly why we gather, to pray for evangelism. Fourth, right understanding leads to right practice. We become more passionate. Since Christ is the only way to be saved, we become more passionate about sharing the gospel with the lost. So, quickly as I close, how do I evangelize? How do I do it? couple quick tips. Number one, take the opportunities that you already have. Take the opportunities you already have. So, for instance, my friend Jamie, years ago, was on a flight, and Jamie sat next to a woman and began to talk to her about Jesus and shared the gospel with her. Check this out, all right? Years later, that woman came to the Garden Church, and we became her first church home. She was led to Christ by a friend of mine and nobody knew each other. She didn't even get his contact information or anything. She just remembered his name and where he was a pastor at. I'm like, that was my friend who shared the gospel with you. And you ended up in my church. Isn't this crazy? Anyway, what did Jamie do? He just simply took the opportunity that he had. He sat down on a plane and he shared the gospel with. And, and by the way, when I told Jamie about this later, he didn't even know that he led her to Jesus. He just shared the gospel with her. And that was it. And the Lord used that to convert her. Take the opportunities that God gives you. Secondly, create opportunities. Create opportunities. What do I mean by that? Well, first, think of low-hanging fruit. Think of the people that, that just simply attend this church or walk through our doors and visit. Some may be Christians looking for a church, some may be visiting, but some may not know Jesus. Don't assume everybody that's in this room knows Jesus. It's one of the most deadly assumptions we can make. Start with low-hanging fruit and meet with people and ask them about their story, ask them about their faith, and help them have confidence in the gospel. But in doing so, cross-cultural boundaries. Going to the nations in the Great Commission would have been scandalous for the first century Jewish Christian. To, to go to people that are not like you. Don't just stay in your little bubble of who you're familiar with and friends with. Yes, sure, have friends. Friends are great, but be, be, let your friends be co-workers in the gospel. And make sure you're including people not like you who don't know Jesus into your friend group. Cross-cultural boundaries go to the nations even in our city. Host an evangelistic dinner party, perhaps. Get some friends together and be on mission and invite people to your house for dinner. Get to know your neighbors. Live intentionally. Think about where you go to the store. Think about the gas stations that you would. Go to the same places and get to know people. Create opportunities to share the gospel. Number three. Involve your church in your personal evangelism. I often put it like this. Don't just invite people to church, share the gospel. But don't just share the gospel, invite people to church. Because the, 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 what Jesus says, that they will know that I'm legit sent by the Father in the way that they see you love each other. And so the church comes together to testify to the goodness of God. 
So include your church in your evangelism. And number four, trust God's power to save. Our power, church, is not in our methods. Our power is in the power of God who saves. Use different methods, learn methods, become experts in methods, but it's never the method that saves. Our job is to proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ, and it's God's job to convert. And I believe He will. I would sacrifice I would sacrifice anything for her. That's how the father from the movie Taken described his love for his daughter. You know this movie? It's a good one. It's like the dude, he's like the father that every father wants to be. His, his daughter, she's rebellious, she's, she lied to him, she did a, the a opposite of what he told her to do, and she ended up getting kidnapped and into this, this like sex trade ring. And so this father, he's his former CIA agent, you've seen this? The, and he says to the kidnapper, I'll find you. I'll just leave it right there. And so he, he does, he, he, he goes across the world, He finds the original guy that lured his daughter in. He attacks him, gets some information. He ends up finding the safe house where they they, they keep the girls. He He enters into this dark new world to try to find his daughter. He almost dies. And then finally, he leaps onto a moving yacht knocks out somebody in the process, fights 11 guys, gets shot, and then finds his daughter and kills the guy that has kidnapped her and rescues her. Sorry, this isn't a PG-13 church. Now, when he finds his daughter, she breaks down in tears and is weeping. And what does she say? She says, through weeping, she kind of whispers this. She says, you came for me. You came for me. She was shocked. She was a rebel. She lied. She did the very opposite. And when she sees her father, her response is, you came for me. Church, don't you know That God in Christ did not come for us because we were such good little children? Don't you know that as that movie ends and as that scene ends, He embraces her. He doesn't say, oh man, you should have listened to me. He doesn't get on to her. He doesn't say, I can't believe that you rebelled. I can't believe that you lied. He embraces her in His salvation of her. Don't you understand that this God comes to us and fully wraps His arms around us and embraces us in our salvation? Christ came to us. Christ, to save us, entered into a dark world taking on the greatest enemies, taking on His own judgment for our sin. Oh, what love the Father has for us in Jesus Christ. It led Him to Golgotha. 
where they drove nails in his feet and hands, a crown of thorns pressed into his skull, and he died. He died, church. Don't you know that he actually died? Christ died on the cross for your sin. But the story doesn't end there. Three days later, the earth shook and the stone rolled away. And Jesus got the victory over our enemies. And He calls to us. And He says, come to us. Come, you who are weary. You who need help. You who need salvation. Come. And He wraps His arms around us. Yes, He came for us. Our mission to take Jesus to the lost is fueled by our understanding of Christ's mission to save us. The missionary C.T. Studd once put it like this, and I close with this quote. He says, When I came to see that Jesus had died for me, it didn't seem hard to give up all for Him. Amen? Father, we thank You that Christ came to us and died for us. God, may we be moved by His mission to, to go on now our mission to make Christ known in every sphere of life that we enter into. May we say, Christ is enough. Christ is the light. And may we be Your light. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.